Well, good morning. It's so great to continue in worship with you all this morning as we sing and hear stories of what is going on in our communities, but also as we read scripture together. Um, So the passage that we're reading this morning is up on the screen. Um, If you do have an electronic Bible, flip to that. If you don't have a Bible and you want to actually hold it in front of you, if you raise your hand, um, we can give one to you if you don't have one, because we're going to be talking about how important the scripture is today, so maybe you actually do want one. Um, So feel free to raise your hand and we can bring you one, and you can keep it if you'd like. So um, we're going to begin in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up the way of this reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this my beloved son with Sorry, I'm so sorry. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, just as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. God. Well, it's great to be with you today. Uh, We live in Kitchener, but uh, we've spent a bit of time in Guelph over the years. Our, our daughter, Carissa, was a student at, at Guelph and did her degree here in biology. Um, our second son, Dan, did his degree in computer science here. And James has already stolen my announcement about our... <laughs> thanks a lot. About our granddaughter, Joanna, who is our, our daughter's daughter. Um, who, who indeed is a re, has been recruited to be a goalkeeper on the women's soccer team here. So it, you're, you're right. We, chances are we will spend a bit more time in Guelph over the next while. I hope maybe, maybe when school starts we'll be able to bring, come and bring, help Joanna find her way into Church of the City. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be part of such a non-controversial series. Um, <laughs> That, that makes me feel right at home, actually, because controversy has a way of finding me. I, I don't really seek it out, but lo and behold, it, it seems to be a, a pattern of my life. Um, I, th- I think it's fair to say that in, in our contemporary time, in our time and place, in contemporary Canada, committed Christians often feel marginalized, uh, often the subject of 
public ridicule, really. That's a newsflash. I'm sure you never thought of that. But it certainly seems to be the case. In fact, um, it's not uncommon that, that if, a, if a Christian involved in political life dares to, to say something or is outed as having said something that, that affirms traditional Christian understanding of things, that's called a bozo eruption. And, and the leaders of their party have to somehow deal with it. How could people like that be in public life in contemporary Canada? And at, at the heart of that idea often is the fact that the, the Bible is sort of a relic from another time. Um, I mean, who, who could really take that as kind of a final authority for things? And, and, and so that idea gets ridiculed, and, and those who affirm it often get ridiculed. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say that, that in our culture today, about the only group, social group within society, who, who can be publicly ridiculed and everybody's okay with it, would be traditional Christians. Traditional Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants, especially. You, you, would, you would not ridicule the Quran in public in the way that you might ridicule the Bible. Well, if we hear enough of this and feel enough of that, we may, we may begin to wonder. We may, we may lose some confidence. And, and we may ask the question of the day, can the Bible still be trusted? In fact, you, you may well, I don't, I don't know many of you personally, you may well have very honest questions about, about whether we really can hang on to that traditional understanding of the Bible as God's Word written. And so I'm happy to, to help us think about that question. Now, I was telling Matt after I arrived, this, this is the second Sunday in a row when, when I've I've been called upon to preach a topical sermon. Actually, last week was in my own church, Grandview Baptist in Kitchener, in which I was answering the question, why are all the elders male? Two days after International Women's Day. <laughs> so I'm, life's a little strange right now. Um, and, and, and so it's two Sundays in a row of topical sermons. Normally, I'd, I'd rather dive into a given text of Scripture and explain its meaning and its implications, but, but sometimes we do need to step back and, and, and answer some, some of those questions, and this is one of those days. So, we're talking about the Bible and why I think indeed it can still be trusted, but this is not going to be a biblical exposition. We're going to be addressing some questions about about why we think the Bible is so important that we actually do biblical exposition. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about four basic questions. The first one is, are the copies of the Bible hopelessly corrupt? Now that, that's a question that, that is often asked. I'll never forget the day. I was in my third year in university. And I, I was sitting in a large lecture hall with 
couple of hundred other students. Uh, it was a history course, and at that point in time, we were covering the Roman era. And so this day, the professor walks into class on a stage like this, and he takes off his well-worn tweed jacket and tosses it aside and, and rubs his, his, his hair all over the place and, and says, the New Testament? A, a final authoritative source? Are you kidding? Do you know that in the copies we have of, of the Greek New Testament, there are over 20,000 variations? And I sat there thinking, I'm confident there's a perfectly good answer to that question, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and, and there he was, teaching history and, and, and putting all kinds of doubt into the minds of students about why they should take the Bible seriously. Uh, more recently, uh, a man named Bart Ehrman has, has become rather famous. Bart had, a, had an evangelical conversion experience as a teenager, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, um, and then did his PhD at Princeton Seminary. Uh, he's a professor uh, dealing with New Testament and early Christian history at the University of North Carolina. But he's an agnostic now. And, and he's written several books, one of which is called Misquoting Jesus. And, and thus, the mere title conveys the impression what we have in the New Testament somehow isn't really what Jesus said. And, and we don't even, with all those variations in the manuscripts, we don't even know if we know what the writers of the New Testament actually taught. Well, here, here's the situation. What we have is an embarrassment of riches. In terms of copies of the Greek New Testament, manuscripts copied over the centuries, early centuries through the Middle Ages, we have over 5,000 partial or complete manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. So we obviously have thousands of scribal variants. In terms of the way you count a variant, all it takes is for a scribe copying the Greek New Testament to uh, forget one word or, or, or add one word perhaps or do a slip of the pen and, and, and misspell a word or reverse two words, and that's a variant. If you have 5,000 manuscripts, it only takes four slips of the pen per manuscript of the whole New Testament to create 20,000 variants. So the, the situation is not quite what my professor a long time ago wanted to argue. Now, I'm, I'm focusing very narrowly here on the New Testament, not on the Old Testament, uh, because you probably have something to do before the next three or four hours are up. In, in the copies we have of the Greek New Testament, in terms of any text of longer than a verse that might be questionable, there are two. The long ending of Mark's Gospel from verse 9 to 20 is absent from the earliest Greek manuscripts of Mark, although it's present in some others that are fairly old, and, and it's referred to by, by early Christian writers. 
The other text is John 7:53 to 8:11. It's the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. I know you're thinking, really? That story may not be original. It may not be original. Now, even if it's not original, that doesn't mean it didn't actually happen. Um, but here's what I, I would suggest. The presence or absence of either one of those texts changes nothing about what the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John is teaching. There, there's nothing in the texts that's problematic, as if we would say, whoa, that can't be true. Well, maybe, maybe the handling venomous snakes in Mark 16 may make you a little queasy, but, but there's no reason why that can't be true. That could be a miraculous kind of sign occurring occasionally. There's nothing in the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery that is misleading, but there's nothing there that isn't taught clearly elsewhere in Scripture. And those are the only two passages that, that are actually questionable. And then the fact is, the, the actual variants are, are generally trivial. They really are. And, and they don't leave us in any doubt as to what the authors are actually saying. Now, here's, here's the radical thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the next slide, which gives you a sample of the, the, what, what the, the ver typical variants are actually like. So I figure I'll go to the, the epistle, Paul's letter to the Romans, one of the most important books in the New Testament, and, and we'll look at a small sample of, of the typical variants in the manuscripts. So, very first verse, does he say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? Wow, that's problematic. <laughs> now at chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the earliest reading in the manuscripts. Later manuscripts, a lot of them have, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, would anybody read the first 16 verses of Romans and say, I wonder what gospel Paul might be talking about? I don't think so. In chapter 5, verse 1, this is an odd one. Um, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But some other manuscripts have, they actually just changed one Greek letter. Um, an Omicron becomes an Omega. And so it would mean something like, let us have peace with God, which would mean something like, let us experience, let us rejoice in, in our peace with God. One is stating the fact, the other is stating the, the implications of it. In chapter 8, verse 2, Paul talks about how the Spirit has, has set us free from the law, and, and you have three different readings in the manuscript. Some say the Spirit has set you free. Some say he has, the Spirit has set me free. Some say the Spirit has set us free. You can use any of those pronouns to make the point that all who belong to Christ have been set free from the law of death by the Spirit. So we aren't left wondering what Paul is teaching. Romans 8:28. Oh, say it's not true. Say it's not true that there's a variant in Romans 8:28. Well, there is. 
Some manuscripts have the Greek word theos, the word for God, in the sentence. Others don't. So if, if, the word, if God's name, theos, is present, then the sentence means God works all things together for good for those who love him who are the called according to his purpose. If theos is not in the manuscript, not in the, not in the text, then all things... That the word for all things becomes the subject of the sentence, and it means, and it says, all things work together for good. Well, for whom? For those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So, whether God's name is in the text or not, it's obvious that Paul is saying all these things work together for good, specifically because God is working out his unfailing purpose for his people. In chapter 14, Paul, Paul talks about judgment that's going to come for all of us at the end. And some manuscripts have, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some say before the judgment seat of God. But if, as Jesus taught us, God has committed all judgment to the Son, we are talking about two different judgment seats, two different ways of talking about the same reality. And then two verses later, all of us will give account, or in other manuscripts, all of us will give account to God. Well, if the to God is left out, it's pretty clear um, who it is to whom we will give account. No one would wonder, I wonder, I wonder who Paul thought we would give account to. Now, honestly, those are the typical kinds of variants. Now, there are some other places where you have a different kind, like, for, for, let me just mention a couple. In, in Colossians 1.14, the, the later manuscripts have, we have redemption in, uh, Paul talks about having redemption in Christ through his blood. But the earliest manuscripts for Colossians don't include the phrase through his blood. They just say, in whom we have redemption. And so some well-meaning but misguided critics of modern versions that are based on the oldest manuscripts will say, see, that modern version denies the blood of Christ. That's not at all the case. The translators are simply being honest with what appears to be the original text, which probably didn't have that phrase. The same versions in Ephesians chapter 1 have the phrase. Ephesians and Colossians, Paul wrote in very similar ways. And so in chapter 1 of Ephesians, all the manuscripts have, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Nobody's trying to deny the blood of Christ. It's just a question of whether it was explicitly there in the earliest text of Colossians. One other. Um, one of the differences between the early texts and the later manuscripts, and therefore one of the differences between King James Version, which is actually based on those later manuscripts, and modern versions based on the earlier manuscripts, is several places in the New Testament, the early manuscripts and the modern versions will have simply Lord Jesus, but the King James Version will have Lord Jesus Christ. Decades ago, in fact, early in my pastoral ministry, I, I read a little book by a, a Baptist pastor attacking, believe it or not, the New American Standard Bible 
as a wicked version. And, and one of the arguments he makes is, look at these 15 times when they omit the title Christ. The translators obviously dislike the title Christ. And I thought, that is, he is either ignorant or willfully misleading. I was incensed. I, I made the mistake of reading it before I went to bed. That was not a good thing to do. So I wrote the, I wrote the guy a four-page letter. And he wrote back a four-page letter. Dear Brother Fowler, I am so glad to encounter somebody else who cares about truth. And, really? So we exchanged a couple of letters, and then I realized I could see the rest of my life unfolding before me and decided <laughs> to bring that to an end. It's not about a dislike for the title Christ. It's just about asking, okay, what do the manuscripts indicate about the earliest text? And whether it says Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ, it's obvious whom we're talking about. Those are the typical variants in the manuscripts. They don't leave us asking, what did those writers actually want to say? All, all we're talking about is just the stuff around the edges and, and the exact way in which it was said. There's no real question about what they taught. So if someone says, look, we have no idea what those, those writers of the New Testament really said, because look at all the differences we have in the manuscripts, you might just ask them, have you ever looked at what the actual differences are? Fact is, they're trivial. Uh, a second question that some bring up is, well, okay, it, granted we, we may have some sense of what was there in the original, can we really trust any translation of the Bible? I mean, we have all these translations in English. I mean, what's, which one's right? How, how can we know? I mean, they, they aren't exactly alike. Otherwise, they wouldn't be separate editions with different names. I mean, can we really trust the translations? Well, there are a lot of things to be said. What, one is this, that the fact that we have so many translations means that they are checks on each other. And so a rogue translation that really can't be trusted would become pretty obvious because there are so many others translating the same original texts. And so the, the fact is you can trust almost any translation to give you the point of what the Bible is saying. Very few of them have, have a, a, an agenda. One great exception would be the New World Translation done by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and it pretty clearly has an agenda, and, and everybody else points that out, and it's recognized as a rogue translation. I mean, it's, it's, it's giving us a spin for sure. But it's very hard to find another translation in that rogue category. And, and we need to understand that while, while the different Christian traditions disagree about a variety of things, they aren't, those differences are not based upon different manuscripts of the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament. 
or different translations. There, I mean, there are Roman Catholic translations of the Bible and there are Protestant translations of the Bible, but the theological differences between Catholics and Protestants aren't based on those translations. They're based on how we interpret the Bible as a whole, reading the same translation. That's where the difference lies. So, yes, we, we can trust the translations. Now, let me illustrate, um, let me pick a, an important verse, Romans 3.25. This is in the middle of a very important passage written by the Apostle Paul about, about the saving work of Christ and our reception of it by faith. So here's the way it reads in four different translations. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, refers to Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The New International Version, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The New American Bible, the Roman Catholic translation, through his blood, God made him the means of expiation for all who believe. And then the New Living Translation, a, a very good, what you might call dynamically equivalent translation. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now I would suggest that all four of those translations convey the same point. Christ shed his blood to deal with our sins and those who believe in Christ are right with God because of what he did. The, the biggest difference in the texts is, is whether is what you do with a, the Greek word helisterion there. Do you translate it propitiation as the ESV does, expiation as the New American Bible does, or sacrifice of atonement as NIV does? Now, that, what this illustrates is the challenge of translation. All right, any of us, any of us who, who have ever studied a language other than our first language, and this I mean, if we're Canadians, we've at least studied French, right? Whether you wanted to or not, okay. So anybody who's ever thought about a second language comes to recognize there is no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation from one language to another. There is no such thing. Maybe I did teach you Greek. I taught Greek, taught basic Greek for about a decade. And I used to have to say every year periodically to students as they were looking at, a, at a, a text in the Greek New Testament and talking about translating, I would have to say, look, you're asking, okay, you know, what's that word, what's the right word for that word? And I said, there is no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation from one language to another. And, and sometimes translators have to, have to ask, as here, all right, do we, do we translated in a way that tries to capture the 
all the nuances of that word? Or, or do we translate it in a more general way and let the teacher explain about the original? And that's what we have going on here. Now, how many of you in the last week have used the word propitiation or expiation? Okay, that, that would be none of us. Neither one is, is the word used common in common speech. Now, it, the concept is important, but the term expiation has sins as its object. So we expiate sins. We put them away, we deal with them, we eliminate them and the guilt associated. Propitiation adds to that the idea of turning away wrath. So sins are expiated, God is propitiated. Well, both are true. God's wrath is turned away by the death of Christ that deals with our sins. So the, the New American Bible and the ESV uh, use one of those words. The NIV opts for sacrifice of atonement and leaves the explanation to those of us who teach the Bible to teach about the Greek background to it. Now, if we, if, so do we explain the Greek or do we, exp well, if you translate it propitiation, well, then our task is to explain the English because we don't use that word. Nobody knows what it means, basically. So it, it's, the, it's the challenge translators always face. But the fact is, this illustrates how in, in Bible translation, you, you can pick up almost any translation. And, and assume that it is conveying what the original writers wanted to teach. There are little differences among them, but you can, you can make the same point, you can articulate the same truth with more than one set of words. All right, a third question. Do the miracle stories make the Bible mythical? After all, I mean, the Bible talks about stuff that doesn't happen in ordinary daily life. So we, we don't see people getting up out of their coffins. Um, we, don't, we don't see water turned into wine. We don't see those miraculous things described in the Bible happening in our everyday life. So does that mean the Bible actually is just Stories, it's mythical, it, it, may, it says good things, morally, we hope, but you, mean, you can't really trust the details. Well, it's hard to eliminate the miracles from what's there, you know. And, and here are some things to think about. The, the most important thing is, if God exists, miracles ought not be surprising. I mean, if there's a personal God who has created this universe and sustains it, it, it would not be a shock if he sometimes acted in unusual ways and, and caused things to happen in a very abnormal way, in a way for which there's no, there's no explanation readily available. That would not be a shock. In fact, though, there, there are credible witnesses to many modern-day miracles that parallel most of the kinds of things that happen in Scripture. The, the massive study of this is written by Craig Keener called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. Uh, I mean, everything Craig writes 
uses up hundreds and hundreds of pages. He's a wonderful uh, New Testament scholar, and, and he's done massive research in the modern world. And so you might want to check out that book. But it's also important to remember that in the Bible, miracles are not described as regular day-to-day experiences. I mean, the Bible doesn't say anything like a miracle a day keeps the devil away. (laughs) They are not assumed to be the kind of thing that happens all the time to everybody. They, They are described in the way they are because they are unusual. That's why they are called signs and wonders sometimes. If they, if they happened week after week, they wouldn't be wonders. It'd just be the way things happen. Okay, I shouldn't say what just came to mind, but fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> we often use the word miracle glibly and, and in ways that annoy theologians like me. So, for example, I understand what you're trying to say if you talk about the miracle of childbirth. Talking about how wonderful it is to have a baby. But childbirth is not a miracle. Childbirth is the normal way God made this world to work. Pregnancy happens over the space of nine months and and the woman is able to give birth to the child. It's not atypical, it's typical. So I, I, I know how wonderful it is to hold that newborn baby, and I'm not wanting to put that down. My wife is here probably remembering that time in our life group back in Toronto decades ago. A couple in the group had a baby born, and the new father talked about the miracle of childbirth. And I couldn't resist. <laughs> it was... It was not one of my finer moments. <laughs> I, I'll admit that right up front. I, I didn't have to say it. And I think on the way home you said to me, you just had to say it, didn't you? <laughs> um, I really didn't have to say it, and I shouldn't have. But, but you see, we, we sometimes use the word miracle far too loosely. But, I mean, miracles are described in the Bible not because they were saying, hey, this happens all the time. It's because they happened in special times to indicate God was present and active in a particular way. And remember this. I mean, if you have trouble believing in miracles, think about the supreme miracle in Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's really the miracle that validates all the others. That's the miracle that validates Jesus. Rejected by sinful human beings, but vindicated by God, who reversed what humans did and raised them from the dead. And in the New Testament account, in the apostolic preaching, they, they can say, we saw him, we've eaten with him, we've touched him after he was raised from the dead. We are eyewitnesses of the fact that he had been raised. And they're credible eyewitnesses because if what they were saying they had experienced wasn't true, they were either liars or lunatics. But, but liars don't tell lies to get themselves into trouble, which is what the apostles did. They got themselves into trouble and ultimately martyred. 
And they went to their martyr's death, still affirming that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And they weren't lunatics, because lunatics, well, I mean, hallucinations are highly individualistic things. They aren't things experienced by a large group of people over the space of 40 days. And, and lunatics really aren't capable of leading a sect of, Jude, of Jews to become what the church became. So even skeptics recognize, you know, it's pretty hard to call them liars or lunatics, then they're credible. And God raised Jesus from the dead, the supreme miracle. So we can believe in miracles. Now, final question. Some people would say, okay, but in spite of all of that, I mean, this whole idea of biblical inerrancy or infallibility, the Bible's fully truthful and all, all that it asserts, I mean, what does that even mean? Because we're talking about a Bible that, that seems to talk about a flat earth and the ends of the earth and sun rising and, and going around the earth. Um, we're talking about texts that talk about God having bodily parts like eyes and arms and ears. And we're talking about texts that say things like, if, if your right eye makes you stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, hack it off. Really? I mean, what does it even mean then to talk about the Bible being inerrant or infallible? Well, answering that question more fully would in fact take the afternoon. But a few comments. First of all, it means when we say the Bible is inerrant or infallible or fully truthful or whatever description you want to use, when we say that we mean that whatever the biblical authors intend to teach is true. But they teach truth in diverse ways. I mean, the Bible is not in, in some angelic language. It's human language, human forms of expression. And, and we express truth in many different ways. And the Bible expresses truth in many different ways. So, for example, the full range of figures of speech is allowed. So we have the language of appearance, or phenomenological language, we call it. So the biblical writers describe the sun as rising and setting, not because they were trying to make an astronomical point about how exactly the universe is structured, but because they're using the standard language of describing things in terms of their appearance in exactly the same way that every weather reporter on radio and TV today does. Trust me, yet again today, at some point they will say, sunrise today was at, sunset will be. They're not making a point about astronomy, they're just using standard language to talk about the way we experience the world. The Bible uses anthropomorphism to describe God as having a right hand or having eyes, etc. It's clear from all that the biblical authors write, they aren't intending to say God has an actual physical body. I mean, Jesus explicitly says that's not true in John 4. They're just using standard, standard kind of figure of speech. Um, they use hyperbole, or exa intended exaggeration. 
So when Jesus said to men who, who might sin lustfully by looking at a woman with lustful intent, if your right eye makes you stumble, gouge it out. If your right, eye, right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Everyone would have recognized He's using hyperbole. He's saying, take whatever radical action you can or have to do to avoid that kind of sin. I've told you a million times, we often use hyperbole, right? We speak that way. We we, we don't realize how many figures of speech we use until someone makes us stop to think about it. Or maybe until we try to communicate in another place where they speak another language. And they don't use the same figures of speech, perhaps. So, when we, a, a famous Baptist preacher decades ago wrote a book called Why I Preach That the Bible Is Literally True. That was an unfortunate title. Now, I know that the term literally now gets used in all kinds of strange ways. In fact, it often gets used to mean figuratively. <laughs> Um, but it was an unfortunate title because we don't say the Bible is all literally true because it, it wasn't all intended to be read literally. It was intended to be read as normal human communication, which is true. Now, on a larger scale, the Bible also contains diverse forms of literature, and each one has to be read in its own way. So some of it is historical narrative, and it's intended to tell the story in a chronological way. Luke's Gospel is is probably, of the Gospels, the one most um, written that way. Some of it's logical argument, as as Paul in Romans or Galatians, where the the precise meanings of the words are important, and, and everything is said with great care. But other parts of Scripture are poetry, intended to be heard and read as poetry. So when, when the Psalms anticipate that, that the, 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 the trees of the forest will rejoice and sing, the Hebrews knew what you and I know, and that is that trees don't literally sing. It's a poetic way of anticipating that the whole created order will come under God's rule. And, and in that way, offer him praise. Proverbs are proverbs, after all. They're generalizations. They are true generalizations, but they are generalizations. They aren't mathematical formulas. So when the Proverbs, Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away anger, the Bible isn't saying, you can, you can write this down as a surefire formula, If someone speaks to you in an angry way and you respond in a gentle way, they will always, without fail, cease to be angry. I mean, I brought this up once in an adult Bible class and a man sitting in the class said, when I read the text, obviously Solomon didn't know my wife. (laughs) And she was sitting next to him. (laughs) That, That made it a bit of an awkward experience. But proverbs are true as proverbs. They are true generalizations about the way life works 
and about the, the way we ought to live if we're going to live skillfully and wisely in this world, but they're proverbs. So if you read them as formulas, they promise too much. And if we think they're formulas, then we get, indeed, we lose confidence in Scripture because we say, well, it didn't work out for me. It's human language, human forms of expression, which are true expressions. Then you have the apocalyptic symbolism of, of something like the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, many Christians have, have assumed, well, we have to read all the Bible the same way. So we have to read the book of Revelation like we read the Gospel of Luke. And, and yeah, there really will be those beasts, those indescribable beasts like that. It's symbolism. And we read it as such. So all that to say, there, there are honest questions that you may have, that plenty of people around us have, about whether the Bible can still be trusted. But there's every good reason to trust it. One other thing about the question of inerrancy, I, I, I can't avoid saying this. When we affirm that the Bible is inerrant, we do not mean that our traditional way of understanding the Bible is inerrant. There's all the difference in the world between what the Bible intends to teach and what I think the Bible is intending to teach on any given point. Using an example is risky, but here I go again. For example, if you've been taught that the Bible obviously teaches in Genesis 1 that God created the whole universe in six 24-hour days a few thousand years ago. And then you encounter evidence that seems to say, well, the earth is a lot older than that. It's, uh, then then, then you're, you may be led to say, well, the Bible's wrong. The fact is, ever since, well, as long as you can go back anywhere in the history of the church, interpreters have always recognized that it's not totally crystal clear exactly how Genesis 1 is to be read. Maybe it does intend to teach a young earth creation. Maybe. Personally, I don't think so. But that would take the afternoon for me to explain all of that. But I, th I, th I think the text, the Hebrew Bible of Genesis 1, read naturally, actually doesn't lead us there. But the problem is, if, if, if you assume that believing the Bible means believing a particular interpretation of the Bible, and then that's challenged in some way, that may lead you to say, well, I guess I don't trust the Bible. It's a big difference between trusting the Bible and trusting what I traditionally understand the Bible to teach. Our understanding of Scripture is always subject to reformation as we continue to look at the Bible together. For Christians, at the end of the day, Jesus ought to have the final word. And here it is. It is written.
Now you say, that's three words. Yeah, it is three words in English, but it's one word in Greek. <laughs> Gegroptai. It stands written. And when Jesus said that, he, he was always saying it as he quoted what we call the Old Testament. He quoted the Bible as it existed in his day, the Hebrew Bible. And for Jesus, that was enough to settle any argument. It is written in the scripture, therefore it is true. If he didn't believe that whatever is taught there is true, then to say it is written there wouldn't prove anything, would it? I've written a few things. I've written quite a number of articles. I've written two books. But if I said to you, look, this is the, this is the way it is, you can be sure it's true because I wrote it in that book. James would say, wouldn't be the first thing you got wrong. <laughs> and he'd be right. To say it is written as the way of proving a point assumes that whatever is written there is true. That's Jesus' attitude. Are there parts of the Bible that are hard to understand? Clearly, there are. Are there parts of the Bible that, that we may feel some discomfort about actually accepting as finally authoritative? Well, yes, sometimes we experience that. But that doesn't mean the Bible can't be trusted. Because if Jesus is Lord, then the Bible is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you have spoken through the prophets in many ways. You spoke with finality in your son and through his apostles whom he chose to represent him and to convey his teaching to the whole world. We do not understand it perfectly, we do not obey it perfectly, but we, in obedience to Jesus who is Lord, we bow to the authority of the same scripture to which he bowed. And so Lord, be at work in us by your spirit, enabling us to not only understand it, but to welcome it and to obey it, that the world may see the life that comes from trusting you and your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.